What is going on, everyone? Welcome to the 13th episode of How They're Here. As always, I'm Tyler Webb, and last week, I was fortunate enough to sit down and talk with career coach, author, speaker, teacher, and the inspiration for this podcast, Chad Ellsworth. I know I've told this story before, but for those of you who don't know, I was in one of Chad's classes called Career Skills last semester, where we learned everything from job interview skills to LinkedIn formatting. This class got me thinking about the informalized nature of our education and our careers, and how there's a gap in our ability to learn about other professions because they simply aren't taught in school. I started this podcast by telling Chad that story, and then we get into what I believe to be some of the most valuable content that I've ever shared on education, careers, and life. I hope you all enjoy this episode and learn a thing or two about how to navigate your own professional lives, gain some valuable insight into how they're here. All right, we are back. I am joined now by Chad Ellsworth. He is a career coach, uh, Gallup certified strength coach, the founder of Cape Coaching LLC, a speaker and the author of his new book, Building Up Without Tearing Down, How to Cultivate Heroic Leadership in You and Your Organization. So it's a lot there and I can't wait to dive into it. But Chad, I first want to thank you for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, To give a little bit of context to the people that are listening, um, Chad is really the, I would say, the genesis of why I even started this podcast. And you probably don't even know this, but I've said it... um, I said it before on, on a couple podcasts, just how your so I was in your career skills class um, last semester, which was a really interesting class, and it wasn't one like I'd ever taken before because it was, you know, the vibe of it was really laid back. Um, you were, you know, really cool. Like you weren't like any of the other professors that I had had. Um, and if, for those of you that don't know, Chad is he works here at the University of Minnesota where I go to school. Um, and it was just a really unique class because I felt like a lot of the stuff that we were learning was really one-to-one translatable to, you know, I was doing it in class and then I could go home that night and literally translate it, which, you know, a lot of the other stuff like entry-level business classes don't have that translation. So I sort of took that, um, you know, that practicality and I loved how you spoke a lot on your experiences. And I know Mm -hmm. in the book and watching, you know, some speeches that you've given, you like to speak a lot on your experiences. And Mm -hmm. I always find those stories and, you know, the way that people talk about their own personal happening so powerful because you know you're able to sort of relate to them as a person and all of a sudden you're both able to draw these these bigger themes of things right so i figured that you know taking what what you had sort of shown me that i could translate a lot of that into the business world so people coming in speaking on their business experiences and giving you know hopefully people that listen to this a chance to be like oh you know i want to start a you know last week i had somebody who started a uh, a social media agency you know i want to start a social media agency let's let's hear his whole story and sort of unpack that or you know somebody that works for the university they're the lead videographer for the football team so i want to get in the video how do i do that so a whole bunch of stuff and i think that like i said that all started with with your class so i didn't know if you wow. knew that but i, I want no, to give you that context that's super humbling and yeah i wish y'all could see how much I'm probably turning red at this point. Usually the, <laughs> the ears go first. Right. They kind of are the lead indicator. Well, it's it's, it's and, warm in here too. We have uh, we're in the de facto studio and I'm sweating a little bit. Good yeah. Lord. But also you, you said that I was cool, which is one of the first times I've ever heard that in my life. So that's awesome. I'll make sure I send you this video clip so yeah. then you can, you know, just play it to your kids or whatever and be like, look, they'll never believe one it. person said it. They'll never believe yeah. it. But yeah, I mean, to kind of touch off of what you're saying, I mean, I kind of have my own roundabout way in terms of getting to this field that, that we call career coaching. Um, and really it came out of my own, you know, personal experience. And I'm sure I should do this class. I can't always remember all the stories I tell, but you know, my wife went through um, a really difficult career transition herself where she was really good at her job, but she really hated it. And so watching her kind of struggle day in, day out and 
making a difficult decision. She actually pulled the plug, just walked away from the job, no new job in hand. And we did a full-time job search and kind of being with her through that process was what led me here. Um, because I realized that I really enjoy helping people in those processes. And so, you know, for me, it was very much born out of not just personal experience, but a painful one, you know, in terms of, I want to help people get career right because we spend more of our life doing work than anything else other than sleeping. Um, and so it's really important. I think that we kind of get that right quote unquote. And there's not a, when I say right, I also mean there's not like a single right thing, but we have to at least point ourselves in the right direction, you know, in a direction that really resonates with us. Yeah. I, I think that's fantastic. And I've spoken at nauseum on this podcast and I, I have people come on that are vehemently against the education system and sort of the university system. And they just, you know, they could go on for days about how it's just messed up and is not helping anybody. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel that way. Obviously I'm here. Um, and I've spoken, like I said, at length about how I think Carlson does it great. And I'm very fortunate to have this sort of, you know, institution that has such great connections here within Minneapolis and then all across the country and the world, because, you know, I've, I've spoken with people that are entrepreneurs. And one of the things that they said, you know, was, I wish I would have started earlier when I was in college, because, you know, a lot of them go to college and go out and start something. But, you know, they, they have things to say, too, about how you have this almost sort of safety net when you're in school mm-hmm. and you have these great resources like you and, and the rest mm-hmm. of the, the coaching team in the, in the undergraduate business office. But how, you know, even if you start something and you start a business in, in college, you're like, oh, this is going to be it. When I get out mm-hmm. of college, I'm going to do this. If that fails, well, your plan B is still really, really good. Yeah. And especially when you're here at Minnesota and in Carlson, it's among the best in the country of, you know, your, your plan B, your safety net's like, oh, you're going to get a really good job once you get out. So yeah. I always think that's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. And I mean, the the safety, the security, the strength, whatever you want to say about your plan B really comes down from the skills that you gain and realizing how you can start to kind of apply those skills, those, you know, talents that you have in different directions. And that's, I mean, I don't know if I ever shared this in class because I feel like a little bit of a poser here in in the Carlson School, but my undergraduate major is Latin American Studies. So I am proof positive that it doesn't matter what you major in. You can still, you know, do something that really fulfills you, that pays your bills. You know, my kids go to school, they participate, you know, participate in sports. I'm a homeowner, you know, like I have all those things that most people want. Um, but I have this really obscure degree. Um, my wife, you know, she's a sociology, law, criminology, uh, deviance major. So again, proof positive that, you know, you can major in you know, these obscure things and still um, be gainfully employed. Sure. And I think, you know, like I said, it comes down to that. Your skills are that thing that gives you the strength of a plan B. Once you understand how to articulate those, how to harness those and how to point those in a particular direction, that's what you know ultimately leads you there. Yeah. What, what are some of those like pointers or indicators of like, this is a skill that I have or this is an interest I have? Because you, you talked about it at the jump that you know, you want to try to get it right as much mm-hmm. as you can get it right. What are some of those indicators? And you're the best person to ask that say like, okay, this is the direction you should be headed. Yeah. So I've kind of, even recently, honestly, I came across this, um, maybe even over the winter here, just a couple months ago, that if you've ever seen Simon Sinek's kind of start with Y diagram, he's got the Y in the middle circle and it looks like a bullseye and kind of goes out from there. The second circle is the how, and then the third is the what. And I've really started thinking about this, and I don't think Simon himself has even taken it this direction, but I've started thinking about that as a, a model for career satisfaction and career fulfillment. Um, that why is, you know, what drives you as a person. And, you know, as myself, I, I love assessments. And, you know, when I, you know, I'm certified in Myers-Briggs, um, the two middle letters tell people kind of what drives them as a person. 
And so my middle two layers are S and F, um, so sensitive feeling. And that means I want to provide practical service to somebody. So when I meet with somebody and what really just fills me up and gets me you know, jazzed is really being able to give them something that they can walk away and act on. And then you move out to that second circle, that how circle. And for me, I like to you know lean on the strengths assessment for that. So Clifton Strengths Finder, um, that assessment, it doesn't tell you what you do in terms of a career and where your interests might be. And this is why we talked about this in class. But once it helps you understand and articulate your talents. So once you understand you know kind of what your why is, what's your driver, what's your motivator, then how do you show up? What are those skills, talents you have? How do you apply your why? Then you look at that outer circle of the what, and that's just where your interests lie. You know, so if it's, you know, in really creative careers, if it's in really, you know, kind of technical careers, anywhere in between, that's how you start to put those three pieces together. And once you understand that about yourself, you know, the really those middle two circles, the why and the how should be the drivers throughout your career. You know, myself, I've done a lot of different things um, over my career. I started out thinking I was going to be a journalism uh, major. I changed my junior year, um, but I still have those writing skills and I've always gotten complimented on, on my writing skills and I, you know, wrote a book Sure. and you know, that was what, 17 years ago, 18 years ago that I changed that major, but I still brought those writing skills with me and they've still paid off. Yeah. I, I love those assessments that you had us take in class. I was, I was always sort of interested in them, but you know, when you're younger and in high school, you usually just search them on the internet and they're these kind of janky free resources. But you know, the ones that you do, and that was sort of always my like assumption of these, which is like, it's like an online survey and you know, what is it going to tell me or anything like that? You know, sort of like a horoscope or some of these other, you know, just kind of seemingly witchcraft readings or whatever you want to call (laughs) them. But the ones that we did, the the Gallup Strength Report and the Careers Finder, I I think Career Leader, those were really comprehensive and, and really good, um, what what is like the science behind that that makes those so accurate and you know yeah. what what's the difference between something like that and are there bad versions of those like that's such an interesting world that i you know i think you're only really ever exposed to when you deal with a professional yes. career coach right yeah and i think that's the difference is the word you used is the key one the science you know when you look at the you know clifton strengths finder it's backed by gallup you know when you think of gallup you think of polling 20 million people worldwide have taken the StrengthsFinder instrument. And Gallup has their own you know, kind of data scientists that analyze that data and help people make sense of it. Um, it's based on the original psychological work of Don Clifton. You know, you look at the Myers-Briggs, it goes all the way back um, to a mother and daughter, Myers and Briggs, you know, who kind of crafted that. Career leaders started with professors at the Harvard Business School who wanted to help their students better understand their interests. And so they surveyed hundreds of thousands of people. And so they all those cases, the assessments that we use, the ones that we used in class, the ones that are more reputable, really were informed by the science. So they did the work first and then built the instrument. Whereas some of the ones you see on like BuzzFeed or you know wherever else online, I think they build the instrument and then kind of predetermine the outcomes. Sure. And so the science isn't what backs it up. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with dissonance on those you know results when you get something back you're like yeah that's not really me and and you obviously can only do it once for yourself but when you get people that come in and be like you know this this thing told me one thing but i I think i'm the other thing what Mm -hmm. what is how do you deal with that yeah i think the biggest thing is helping people understand why that came up so a really good example um there's an instrument that's similar to the career leader one you took called the strong inventory and it's been around for decades um major majorly revised every 10 years so it's not horribly out of date or anything um, but I gave it to, you know, a guy once and he was very much like a man's man. And one of the fields that came up in his top 10 was cosmetologist. And I thought he was going to flip out on me and he just like, what is that? And so 
we had to be like, well, back up just a second. Let's look at why this result came up high. And when you think about what a cosmetologist is, you take the makeup out of the equation, and it's somebody who's engaged in one-to-one selling. They are also, you know, high attention to detail um, and, you know, kind of aesthetics and, you know, kind of the artistic expression. Um, and it's also very tactile. It's very tangible. It's very hands-on. You're working directly with somebody on something very physical. And once we started unpacking those things about why that result came up high, he's like, yeah, that is me. And he did end up becoming a physical trainer because he's interested in working one-to-one with people, you know, selling them on programs and, you know, also doing something that's very physical and you know, tangible. So sometimes it's not about what the result is, but understanding why that probably came up high. Yeah, I think that's an interesting part, too, is sort of transitioning those strengths and utilizing them and trying to highlight them through the, you know, for me being a sophomore going through a lot of interviews and stuff like that, or all the way up into using them in your professional life. How do you, is it like an intentional thing that you're like, today I am going to use my, you know, for me it was, you know, achieve, like I had a strong tendency towards significance or command, or is that like an intentional thing you have to do? Or are those things that just sort of come up in, in how you act? Yeah. Um, actually it's both. Okay. So I think when we think about strengths in general, they are raw talents and they'll come out whether you want them to or not, but they become strengths. So things that show up positively for you when you intentionally apply them. So the more that you can understand how that works for you, you can then point it in particular directions because otherwise it's just going to kind of come out all over the place and it's actually going to drive people nuts. You know, if you just let the strength kind of run you, it's going to become a barrier to your, your success. Sure. Um, but you know, investing in it, understanding how it works. Really good example, um, just from my own life. You know, you mentioned at the outset the book that I wrote. Um, I don't have a lot of high executing themes, but one of the ones that I do have is responsibility. And the way responsibility works is people with high responsibility tend to really enjoy being accountable to other people. And so really, you know, basic example, when I go home for the weekend, if I have 10 things to do and I have one just super important thing to do that's only for me, and I have nine, like, very not important things to do, say for my wife or my kids, I'll do those nine things first because I'm, I'm driven by making other people happy and doing things for other people. Shows up in my Myers-Briggs too, which I think shows how these start to interplay together. Um, but when I wrote my book, I knew that I needed a good engine to drive that performance. So I actually hired a coach and, you know, the coach gave me the structure for writing the book. You know, he certainly helped me along the way. But halfway through writing the book, he even asked me, he said, why did you hire me? He said, you're a gifted writer. This seemed to come really naturally. You always meet the deadline. And I said, Patrick, the reason I hired you is because I need to be accountable. And just by the virtue of you checking in with me every week, drove it. And I wrote the book in a course of a year, which I think was pretty fast. Sure. I don't know. I've never written a book before, but it seemed pretty fast to me. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's interesting because you have the side of strengths and, you know, I asked you if you should play off of those. And the other side is weaknesses. And I've always been curious, is that like a, if you don't have it, you'll never have it, forget about it? Or is it like something where you can have people help you work on it? Yeah. I think there's kind of two different types of weaknesses. So there's weaknesses that are just skills that aren't developed. So there's no natural talent for, you know, certain behaviors. And um, we'll even just say public speaking. Um, when I was in college, my sophomore year, I took a public speaking class and when it came time for us to do the assignment, we wrote out our, our essay and then we had to read it to the class. And so when I got up and I started reading my essay and I'm holding my paper in my hands, all of a sudden, you know, my hands start shaking. And then I realized my hands are shaking. They start shaking even more and more and more and more and more. And before, you know, I can't even read the paper. And then, so the professor comes up, puts his arms around me and says, you know, Hey Chad, why don't you try again next week? 
And now, like you said, you know, I'm not going to be like the most gifted order of all time, but people hire me to come speak. I'm competent at it. It's a skill I've developed. It's not natural for me in any way, shape or form, but it's something that I've worked at intentionally and I've done as many presentations as I can and things like that. So I developed the skill. I think on the flip side, a lot of times our weaknesses are also strengths that we're letting run us instead of us using our strengths. So going back to my responsibility, loving being accountable to other people. Sometimes people with that talent also have a hard time saying no to other people. Um, and sometimes they put their own needs beneath somebody else's. And so those can be things that are barriers to success. So they're weaknesses, but they actually come out of my strength. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's interesting how they can sort of play off each other and you can have, you know, focus on one, even if it's a strength or focus on if it's a weakness. Um, yeah, I, I think that's super interesting. You deal a lot with students and you're sort of that, I won't say gateway, but you're the liaison between us in sort of this little bubble in this, you know, fun fantasy land we live in. And then the real world once, you know, our day of reckoning, as I like to call it comes, what's the most common thing that, you know, under, cause you deal with undergrads mm-hmm. or you're transferring into a new position, which we can talk about, but yeah. for a large majority of your time here, you've dealt with undergrads. What's like the most common thing they, they come to you with? That's a really good question. You know, and I think one of the things I'll say is that whole notion of the real world I think a lot of times, one of the things I hear a lot from students, and they'll come in, and I don't know if this is just the reputation I have or whatever, but they'll come in and they'll say it's something as simple as fix my life. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I want to major in. I don't know what I want to be when I want to grow up, all those sorts of things. Um, I'll be honest. I'm 40. I just turned 40 this year. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. You know, I don't have my life kind of scripted out. My right. philosophy has always been I do what I enjoy. Once I stop enjoying it to the level that I want for my career, I look at other things. And when I go through that process, I always think, you know, what do I like about what I'm doing now and how do I do more of that? So my kind of approach to managing my career has always been like, what do I like? How do I do more of that? And I just move a little farther, you know, kind of down that road. Yeah. So I think that's probably one of the most common things I hear. But um, what's what's step one for somebody that comes in and they're probably hysterical a lot of the times or borderline hysterical? What? What do you, do you say something to calm them down or, cause I'm, I'm a very actual person. So if somebody came to me with that, I would want to get yep. down to business right yep. away, which I feel like is not the right direction to head. So what's step number one for a situation like yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, the first step is I usually, you know, kind of tell that piece I just told you, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 40 and I still don't have it all figured out just to normalize that. Because I think a lot of times we think we have to have it all figured out by graduation. You know, when you walk across that stage, you need to know what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And I think that is one of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves. I think one of the other pieces that I share pretty early in that process is that we don't want to focus about the whole year. How do we focus about like, or the, sorry, the whole career, but how do we focus on that first year, that second year, uh, maybe even third year, you know, just looking statistically, you're not going to do the job that you are doing at graduation the rest of your life. That's just a fact. You know, the, the days of working somewhere for, you know, 40, 50 years and getting the gold watch at the end, those are pretty much gone. You know, most of us will go into a career, do a job for three to five years, and then we'll move. So I think that also takes some of that pressure off of, you know, figuring out, like, I need to do this thing forever as much as I'm going to do this thing for now. And sometimes it's thinking about where do you, you know, ultimately want to go because you can't always do the thing that you ultimately want to do right out of school. So how do you gain those skills that, you know, plan B that we talked about at the outset to be able to build on that and go to that next level? Yeah, I, and I've told the story before, but I think it's really interesting, even when you have to apply to school, the University of Minnesota being a direct admit program, right? Mm-hmm. That your 
17 years old applying to school expecting you know what you want to get into and i think i have kind of a funny perspective because when i applied i applied thinking i wanted to get into genetics so i applied and got into the college of biological sciences here at minnesota and i it was such a hysterical sort of way that it played out because i was then enrolled in all of these you know pre whatever and i didn't really know what i wanted to do i genetics mm-hmm. sound interesting maybe i want to be a doctor maybe not who knows and it's funny because the whole reason I wanted to do that was because I took like a couple biology classes in high school. I'm like, these are interesting. They're pretty easy to me. They're fun. Let's book it. Right. And you're yep. 17 years old. Right. Yep. So the expectation that you have that figured out, it seems ridiculous to me. So anyway, yeah. I, I get here and I'm in all these entry level classes and, you know, chemistry is kind of kicking my butt, whatever. And I, I start to like look around and kind of take inventory of some of the people that are in the room with me. And I'm like, you know, we're not, we just don't kind of think the same. And these people mm-hmm. are far away smarter than me. And I am not interested in this stuff. And, for especially a path like that, I mean, you have to be into it, right? Because it gets hard yep. and it sucks and there's a whole bunch of things. So I remember calling my parents a couple weeks in and, you know, this is also the first semester of school. So it's just over, you know, I'm 400 miles away from home. and It's just overwhelming. Yeah. And so I call my parents. I'm like, mom, dad, I think I'm going to switch majors. And it's like, I, I just thought of like the typical movie trope where it's like, I want to follow my passions and do music or theater. And it's like, my dad, he's in marketing and, you know, my mom's a, a school teacher, but, you know, I'm like, you know, mom, dad, I, I think I want to get into the business. I think I want to do marketing. And it's like, okay. It's like, you know, it's like the easiest conversation yeah. ever. I'm like, that's so funny that my passion is business. Yep. And it's like, you know, it could have been a slew of other things, but it's the, the long and short of that is just so interesting that to your point about knowing what your career is going to be at the end of graduation, knowing what you want to get into at the age of 17 seems mm-hmm. confounding to me too. So yeah. I don't. So first of all, did you know I used to work in the College of Biological Sciences? Yeah, I remember you mentioning it. Yeah, so, so I find that really funny too because I went from biology to business. Right. So I, I understand that difference mm-hmm. intuitively. Um, but no, I think about even when I was 17 um, and more so 18, um, and hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this. She knows this. But when I was 18, I was seriously talking about marrying this woman that I was seeing at the time. Uh-huh. Um, long story short, you know, we broke up less than a year later, but we were ring shopping. I mean... To think that I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life at 18, and I even that one decision that seems like pretty foundational to everything else, I didn't know what I was doing. Right. And at the time, I you know I told all my mentors, my family, like I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm doing. This this is absolutely right. And then lo and behold, towards sophomore year, it's like nope, nope, not a good idea. Yeah. So I mean, it's 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 sort of that brash confidence, and I think it comes in waves, right? You get to 18 years old, and you sort of run the high school or whatever you want. And you're like, I know, you know I'm going off to bigger and better things. And you get to college, you sort of get knocked down a peg again. Cause you're mm-hmm. like, oof, and then I think the same thing sort of probably happens in, in college. I, I would suppose I'm, I'm not there yet, but yeah. you kind of get to the end and you're like, I run this place. And then you kind of get knocked down a peg yep. um, in terms of careers. Are there, are there people that come back to you and they're like, I made the wrong decision or are there people that sort of, you know, reg- regret or looked poorly upon their time at school and they're like, I didn't do enough or is that, is that ever, yeah. a, is that something I should be worried about? This is really just turning into yeah. Tyler's career coaching <laughs> session, but is it something that I should be worried about of like, you know, having regrets? I mean, and that's why I, this is why I teach the the career skills class the way I do, because that to me is the worst thing because I've certainly met a lot of people who leave and it's not regrets, but they see a different path. And so they certainly take something with them from the path that they started down. Um, rarely, but does happen. Um, I've seen people who go down the wrong path and really do have those regrets. Um, I'll never forget shortly after I started in Carlson, I met with a senior, um, in April, he was about to graduate in May and 
he was sitting in front of me. He accepted his full-time offer at, you know, large firm, prestigious firm. And he said, I don't want to do this. And I was like, whoa, like a lot of people would kill for what you have. But he had been following this whole path of everybody else wants what I now have. And so I can't let go of this. But he's like, my heart's not in this. And that was a really difficult conversation. Um, and so one of the things that I, I share with a lot of people, especially when they're at those kind of pivot points, is to always run towards something and not away from something. Because if you're running towards something, I think your motivations are going to be good and you're going to make good decisions. Yeah, you might shift gears later and, and change your path. That's fine. But if you're making kind of fear-based decisions, you know, you're running away from something, that leads to, I, th- I think, more often than not to bad decisions. Yeah, you, you brought up a really interesting point about sort of everybody wants what I have and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I've had conversations. I'm p- friends with plenty of people that are, you know, in Carlson. And I think there's sort of this sort of this interesting culture here about, and, and it's sort of to the point about having a safety net. Like there's almost a roadmap that mm-hmm. I realized when you come here that, you know, your freshman year, you take classes and your sophomore year, we have immersion core, which is sort of your first douse into actual business mm-hmm. courses. And then you're supposed to get an internship that summer and then come back and you do major class, another internship, and then an offer lined up and blah, blah, and then you're out. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And it almost seems like you go through the mo- and I think you talked about it in class where it's like you don't want to come across in interviews or once you get to those later stages as a robot, yeah. right? Because we're all kind of doing the same thing mm-hmm. on resume. We all look very similar. Yep. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think that's yeah. very true. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people are just heads down going through the motions. And I'm like, uh, it yeah. doesn't seem like a good idea. And I don't think that's unique to Carlson. I think if you of went course. into every one of the colleges here at the U, you would find some version of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you looked at say the College of Biological Sciences, it's the med school, you know, kind of moving of walkway. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of different moving walkways just in life, you know, whether it's in college or, you know, later in life. And it takes that conscious decision to walk in the other direction because you're already moving something and if you don't do anything, if you're not aware of what you're doing, you're going to move down a particular path, but you have to think about is this really where I want to go? Yeah, I think it's so interesting because almost a byproduct of like too good of a system, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. it sort of takes all the humanity and work out of it. And it's like, all right, here's a checklist. And if you check all these boxes, Mm -hmm. you'll be fine. And it's like, it seems so easy. It's like, it seems too easy. Right. So it's just like, and I often have to catch myself thinking, I'm like, I shouldn't complain about that because Mm -hmm. that's, I'm really fortunate to have that opportunity. But at the same time, you have to be aware of, of that you're in it, right? Yeah. So here's the fascinating thing. And I, I pull back on my uh, College of Biological Sciences experience because I learned so much about like brain science and how the brain functions while of I was course. there. Um, so brain, our brains love and crave easy decisions. I never thought about this. And I didn't know why, but brains burn calories. You know, so when you're, you know, studying for that, you know, big I-Corps test or, you know, whatever, you have something that you've really been putting a lot of mental energy in, you feel physically fatigued and you're wondering why is that? Well, our brains burn energy. They're, they burn calories. I never knew that. That's great. Working um, out right now. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. So the more you think, the more weight you're going to lose. It's great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think on the flip side is as human beings, and I don't know where physiologically this comes from, we crave struggle, but we have to kind of opt into that. Like we want to prove ourselves. We want to go through things that are meaningful and hard um, and to make difficult choices. But our our bodies are almost predisposed not to. And so it's kind of this constant battle within. And I think that's where this type of thing becomes so challenging because our bodies basically at a physiological level want the easy button. They want to just go down the path and have things, you know, just kind of happen. But 
eventually that catches up to us and we we have that kind of dissatisfaction of you know did i just kind of go down the easy path and give up on things that ultimately would have made me happier right so you're transitioning into a new role here at carlson um which first of all congratulations um but talk a little bit about that and this is again just for me um, yeah anybody else who cares and i'm sure it'll bring up some some interesting topics what are you transferring into and what was sort of the whole motive behind it? And yeah, so I'm moving actually back to the center for academic planning and exploration. Okay. Um, so it's an office, um, outside of Carlson, it's in, you know, university wide that works with, um, students who are exploring different majors and careers. So they're kind of not housed within any of the individual colleges and they help people that are looking at, you know, what are their options? So you can probably tell just from, you know, our conversation here, like this is where my passion is. Like I love, helping people who don't know necessarily what they want to do, find their path. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really easy. And I say I was going back because I had a really unique role about four years ago, um, where I was working the college of biological sciences, but I also got to work about 30% of my work time in the Cape office as well. Um, so I kind of worked part time there before. So I know the staff really well and it's a really fun, um, kind of work. Um, they're also really investing in coaching, which is just a, a super strong interest of mine. Yeah. Um, I've got two different certifications, the Gallup certified strengths coach, and I'm also a board certified coach. So I love coaching as a whole. Um, and that's something that just gives me a lot of energy. So yeah, I mean, it was the opportunity to, you know, kind of reinvest back there and, um, they've got a big kind of coaching project they're working on, okay. um, in terms of helping people across campus gain coaching skills. Um, and so a lot of my time is actually going to be spent working on that project. Cool. So it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're just kind of doing what you do here at Carlson, but scaled up for everybody at the university. Yes. Which selfishly means more people get access to you, but yeah. that's great for the university as a whole and, and yeah. great for you as well. Um, I want to talk about, we touched on a little bit, this point of, you know, I've had guests on that bash college. I've guests on that have, have gone to college. Um, have you ever had somebody that come to you and have been like, I don't want to go to college. I don't. Yeah. And what is that conversation like? And what should, you know, I'm really just trying to get at the mental process of somebody yeah. who has those thoughts. Yeah. What should they be going through to make sure that's the right decision? Yeah. And I think for me, it, it all boils down to what they ultimately want. And, you know, kind of going back to the very beginning of our conversation, that why, that how, that what. Understanding what makes them tick, understanding what talents they have, um, where their interests are, and then ultimately how they want to apply those. That's the only thing that I think really needs to be part of that conversation. Uh, my wife and I talk all the time, though. I think our oldest son, the way he thinks, he could go and get his associate's degree and be a plumber or an electrician and be 100% happy. He could also go and be like a chemical engineer, one of the hardest you know majors to get into at the U, and be really happy, too. And we don't want to push him down any particular path, but really let him discover, you know, here are the realities of choice A, here are the realities of choice B. Which one is a better fit for the kind of life that you think you want at this point? You know, the University of Minnesota is never going to go away, I don't think. Probably always be here. Yeah. And so if he starts down this path and 10 years from now he decides, you know, I went down the path of maybe being an electrician and I've decided I really want to be an electrical engineer and get that additional education, he can come back. You know, it's, it, he doesn't have to, to start, you know, start there. So I think college is really there for the people that want it for the right reasons. And again, getting off the moving walkway a little bit. I think you have to know going into college because college is really expensive, what you want when you leave. And if you're going to come into college without that strong idea of what it is that you want, you're going to spend a lot of money figuring it out. Um, so I'm a huge proponent of, you know, 
making informed choices. Right. And if you don't know, take some classes at, you know, maybe, you know, community college level, um, try some things out, shadow somebody in a trade, you know, figure out if that's what's right for you. Um, but I don't think college is for everybody, you know, and I think that's where a lot of the mistakes come is we force people down this path and they don't want to be on this path. You know, their path is a different way. What, what, do you, what would you say to people? I've heard the argument before where it's basically like college degree is a new high school diploma. If you don't have it, you're at a severe disadvantage because at this point it's just kind of a given that you should have a college degree. Yeah. And I understand that. But, you know, when you look at this, especially the trades, it's an easy example. Uh-huh. There are a lot of people who work in the trades who have, you know, say a two year degree um, or, you know, even one of my best friends from high school apprenticed with his dad. His dad owned um, electrical contracting company. He didn't go to college. He just apprenticed with his dad, and he has a great career. He has, like, a million kids, um, nice big house in the middle of Nebraska. So, I mean, he's done well for himself, and, you know, he doesn't have the student loan debt that I have and, you know, some of those other things that come along with it. So, Of course. And I, I to counter my point that I made, I, I think it's very interesting now that you'll see some of these bigger companies dropping some of their college degree requirements, mm-hmm. right? And all of a sudden, it's, it's not going in the direction of you need to have it because, like, the new high school diploma, but it's mm-hmm. – it's much more of a pragmatic thing, right? Yeah. If, if you want to do it because it's good for where you want to go, yep. great. If not, there are plenty of options and increasingly better options to, without a, a college degree, which I yeah. think is fascinating. Yeah, and I think, again, the major driver in terms of making it in the world today is skills. You know, some people get those skills from college and their degree and the classes, you know, that take. Whether it's, you know, maybe it's an internship, maybe it's apprenticing, maybe it's, you know, whatever. You know, people gain those skills in different ways. But you need skills. You can't just not do anything. Of course. Um, but if you're intentional about how you pick up those skills, I think you'll always find a way to make money and survive in this world. What are some big trends you see in hiring? Because I know that you and did a little 180, whatever. It's my podcast. Um, that <laughs> you know you deal a lot with. Like I said, you're sort of that liaison between college and the real world. What are some things that you're hearing from that other side, that hiring world, that yeah. you're kind of like? trying to funnel in as best you can into the into the college world. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing is that we've got so many machines out there that do things better than humans, but there's some things that machines will never be able to do. And so when you look at, say, the majors in the Carlson School, they help you take really complex information and make decisions based on it. You know, a computer can analyze all the data in the world. You know, even Excel can do really complicated things tell you a lot of information, but it can't make the decision. And so the people skills, you know, really understanding how you work with people, how you lead a team, um, how you interpret information to make decisions, all those things that are human are becoming more and more important. And I think people who are locking themselves, locking themselves in on purely technical skills without developing the people skills eventually are going to probably be left behind to some degree. Uh, because those are becoming more and more critical as we get more and more machines that can do things that we used to rely on people to do. Sure. What's your thought on young people being the scourge of the, you know, you'll get all these takes where it's like millennials are the worst. And then I think I'm in Gen X. I'm either a really young millennial or really old of the next generation, whatever it is, that we just have no personal skills. Our heads are always down. You know, we just have none of these things that you just said are very important, right? But you work a lot with us. And so I have a feeling that you have an opinion on it because I think it's just the funniest thing when you have all these boomers and old people just, you know, shaking their fists in the air and yelling at clouds where it's like back in my day, you know, the whole trope. So what what is your opinion on us as a generation? Yeah. I mean, I hate to throw my generation and my elder generations under the bus, but I, I hear that a lot and it sucks. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really unfair criticism and I think, 
it, quite honestly, it's a stereotype. You know, they they look, you know, let's say some people walking across campus and they see them looking at their phones, be like, let's make this broad generalization about them. Um, but I mean, if I think if you look critically at people who are in your shoes today, so students today, you have had to interact across so many different groups of people, um, even geographically, you know, the interactions that you've had to have, um, learning to be really articulate in communication. You know, people mock social media all the time, but you're still learning to communicate in a different way that is um, in a lot of ways more powerful, more lasting. Um, Not to tell too many stories, but I am really thankful that when I was in college, we didn't have little phones in our pockets because, you know, there'd be things that would be following me around forever. And I think we were allowed more grace in our failures in the past. And the generation today, y'all really have to live with a lot of pressure. And I think this gets in a whole nother topic, but as we see like rates of mental health issues increasing, I think that's why is because there's so much more pressure to perform all the time. And that sounds exhausting to me, you know, just going through life with all that pressure. Um, and so I think, you know, if people are checking out a little bit, that's some self care, you know, because I think there's so much that goes into kind of coming of age in, in our world right now. Um, but the benefit of that is the skills that this generation is going to gain in terms of being able to really represent themselves strongly as professionals, you know, when they do kind of come through this, you know, learning, navigating all this, um, the ability to communicate, the ability to just build rapport with anybody, you know, you think about how wide open the world is now just because of technology, those are great things. Um, and I think the other thing too, and I say this as a generation Xer, um, you know, I was totally like in the flannels and, you know, steel toed boots when I was in high school. Just coming back. You should hang out to that. Cause that's all, if you rolled up to class in flannels and steel toed <laughs> boots, you would, people be paying attention. I was going to say, say I turned some heads for sure. <laughs> yeah, you would. I don't know if it's a good thing, <laughs> but you know, I think, you know, our generation had a lot of, you know, we were kind of seen as downers, you know, like we, we were pessimistic towards everything. And I think the generation now sees things in a different light. Just by and large, I think there's a more optimistic, even though there's probably more problems in the world today than there ever has been. But I think the generation that I see is more entrepreneurial in terms of seeing opportunities to address that. Do you see those trends, you know, like what we have to offer, everything that you just said, do you, do you see those carrying over to employers looking for new things or catering to people in new ways? I sort of have a perspective on mm-hmm. it. So last summer I interned, I was a marketing intern at this um, like mid-level furniture company in Green Bay called KI and they cater a lot to new workplaces. So mm-hmm. I, I wrote a ton of literature and consumed a ton of literature on how companies are reimagining their workspaces. Mm-hmm. They're doing a ton of work in colleges, right? They're mm-hmm. doing a ton of work looking at schools and how, you know, universities make these collaborative workspaces and yeah. mirroring their workspaces to reflect that. Mm-hmm. So I think there is sort of a, a, a direction and a directionality yeah. that companies are taking. Yeah. Is that coming through in the, the hiring process? Because yes. it seems like that's all been really rigid for a long time. So I, I just don't yeah. know. Cause what I think the number one thing that I've seen actually this kind of generation that's kind of coming into the workforce right now, they want more than anything, somebody who's going to coach them. And I see this a lot, even in the instruments, you know, the assessments that I interpret um, with the students that I work with. A lot of times in terms of those career values or motivators, as they're called on the career leader, um, that positioning one, the one that references, you know, kind of investing in me and my development 
is so much higher than it used to be. You know, it, it used to be, you know, going to a place that was really prestigious or you make a lot of money. And yeah, those things are still, you know, high priorities. But the one that's really risen is that investing in development. And what we're seeing is that companies that don't do that well, people are starting to, you know, not go down those paths. 100%. They see, you know, company XYZ doesn't do a good job of this. So I'm going to go to this place. Yeah, I don't make quite as much, but it's comparable. And so people are going to lose talent. And once, you know, fewer people are applying for their positions, not walking through that door, companies are noticing, you know, and I, I know we've even seen that just in the career center um, in terms of companies that don't necessarily haven't moved as much in that kind of coaching personal development space um, aren't seeing the same levels of, of applicants that they used to. Yeah. The, uh, I was able to, or able to task to however you want to frame it, uh, surveyed the other interns at the company and just get their thoughts on a lot of these things. And all those themes were extremely prevalent. I thought the most important, like the most interesting one to me was this idea that, the, like the physical workspace was dictated very strongly if they wanted to work there or not. Mm-hmm. You know, if they had to stand sit at a cubicle or if they got to work in these cool, you know, trendy third party workspaces mm-hmm. or you know third space uh, workspaces. So I thought it was just interesting, and I I wanted to double check that that was being translated over because I think it's you know you see a lot of these people that are still in positions of power at these companies mm-hmm. that are probably still very much so stuck in these, mm-hmm. you know, old ways of, you know, all oh, these kids want too much and blah, 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 blah. But yeah. the reality is that mm-hmm. if they don't change the workforce is, yeah. the, you know, we're going to be the largest workforce yeah. very soon, if not already. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's all about attracting and retaining talent. And if you're not doing those things that are bringing talent through the door and keeping them there, you're spending a lot more money on recruiting, but then also training. Yeah, I, 100%. So pivoting now a little bit into some of the stuff that you do. So your, your book, um, you, you speak on heroic leadership, which I think is a, a really interesting concept and what I want to dive into a little bit. Pitch me now just 30 seconds to a minute on what ho- heroic leadership is so we can have some context and then we can yeah. dive into how it came about because I know there's a fantastic story behind it. Yeah, so it, it comes 100% out of the idea of the hero's journey. So if you look at the mythology around the world and a man by the name of Joseph Campbell did this a um, long time ago, he's deceased, but he looked at mythology all around the world and there, there's this kind of common monomyth, he called it, of the hero's journey. And really it's just a pattern for personal development. So if you look at, you know, any famous movie, you know, we'll just take, you know, Star Wars, um, you know, maybe we'll update this a little bit. We'll go with uh, one of the Marvel heroes, Captain Marvel. I just saw it. Sure. So Captain Marvel is going through her existence. She you know, thinks that she's this noble Kree warrior hero, as she says in the trailer. And sorry, spoiler alert. Um, if you haven't seen the movie yet, you should probably like pause right now. Um, but Captain Marvel learns that the reality that she had isn't necessarily the truth. And it's not her truth for sure. Um, and that she had a life back on Earth, which I think you kind of allude from the trailer anyway. And she learns kind of about her own power and her own agency. And the great thing about the hero's journey is that it's not always about an individual, or I should say it's not just about an individual kind of gaining their own power. It's always about serving others through that power, you know, and it's about making a difference for others. So for me, the hero's journey, this exists basic psychologic, you know, psychology um, in terms of how we as human beings 
you know, explore the world. My master's degree is in counseling. And so human development is something that, you know, I've studied a lot of different kind of models for that, but they all pattern really nicely on this. So the basic idea is that, as I say across the top of the book, there's a hero in all of us. And when we kind of awaken to that potential, that possibility, that power that we all have, we're no longer, you know, going down the moving walkway to go back to that analogy. You know, we can take control and agency of our lives, but we can also make a difference for other people. You know, we can have much more profound impact on the people around us than we probably thought that we could originally. So I'm assuming when you, because I think this is important to, to give context on, when you say a hero's journey, you're obviously not saying, you know, going around and saving damsels in distress and getting cats out of trees. Yep. What is the practical, maybe pared down way that people are heroes in their own life? Because I think yeah. hero has such this, you know, apocryphal, just yep. high, lofty, like, wow, that sounds great. But then people generally don't think of themselves as heroes. So. Exactly. And that's, that's one of my big soapboxes. We take the idea of hero and we put it out of reach. And it was never meant to be that. If you look at, you know, ancient societies, they told these stories to inspire everybody. You know, it wasn't, we're going to tell this great story just to entertain somebody about this, you know, figure real or mythical that did this really amazing thing. They were meant to drive behavior of everyday people. So when I talk about heroes, I mean, that is not just a person, but it's, it's a calling. It's a story that we're invited to tell for ourselves to bring this back to, you know, how we all experience this. Our whole conversation here has really been kind of that underlying hero story. It's how do you get off the moving walkway of your life? How do you, you know, take the story that you've just kind of accepted? How do you write your own story and how do you make that larger than yourself? That's the nutshell of the hero's journey. There's three main stages. It's the separation, it's the initiation, the return. The separation is when you go out of the life that you were kind of taught to live. The initiation is where you go through the really hard challenges and find who you really are, that treasure for yourself. You know, they, the, the, the movies, you know, always have a, a physical treasure, you know, that somebody, the hero gains from it. But really the true treasure is that knowledge of self, and then ultimately the return. It's always bigger than the hero. It's not just the hero does this really great thing, overcomes this really big obstacle. They always make it bigger than themselves. And so it's that giving back. What was the, the catalyzer for you? Was there a specific instance that really made you consider this mindset as something that was innate in all of us? Or was it see, observing human behavior? What was it for you that kind of sparked this whole yeah. concept? Honestly, it comes from... I think it was 2007, um, I was given an award called the Anti-Hazing Hero Award. And even more than that, it's named for one of my heroes, Hank Neuer. Um, and when I got that award, I really had a lot of discomfort around that word hero. Because the background of that whole story is when I was a student, I challenged the hazing that was going on in my fraternity. And I had to leave in the middle of the night as a result. And there was an investigation. In all honesty, I don't feel like I was particularly successful in addressing it because I found out a few years later through a, a couple of random connections that everything that I kind of stood up against was still going on in that fraternity. Um, and so when I got this award and they named me a hero, I'm like, that's really uncomfortable. I don't feel like I deserve this. And so I really started digging into that word hero and what it means. And as I understood that larger kind of story of, what it is, I'm like, okay, it, it helped me come to terms with it that, you know, yeah, I did go through this journey and, you know, yeah, I didn't change it in this one organization, 
but the work that I've continued to do, I wrote my master's thesis on hazing. I, you know, was on nonprofit board. I still speak a lot on that topic. Um, that's what really kind of catalyzed that for me. Um, but it's really my own discomfort with that word. I think it's interesting that, and this could go back to this idea that hero just seems so unattainable in our uh, dialect, but the idea that there can be multiple heroes mm-hmm. in, in a situation. Can, mm-hmm. can you expound on situation in which that would be the case or the whole idea behind that? Because yeah. in consuming a lot of your content, you know, talking about a lot of heroes, you always think, well, there has to be one, yeah. right? But that's not the case. Yeah. No, it's funny because um, one of the chapters in my book, I actually address that as, you know, in the movies, we always see like the singular hero, except for these big team ups like Avengers and Justice League and you know movies like that. But the actual truth is that we all have teams of heroes and no one person does it alone. Um, even if you look at some of the greatest heroes of our world, so the Martin Luther King Juniors, you know, the Mahatma Gandhis, the, you know, Abraham Lincolns, you dig in their biographies and you see that they had people around them. You know, it's not this singular person. Yeah, one person kind of gets put on the pedestal, which is, I think, a whole another topic on, you know, just kind of how culture and history work. But when you look at the realities of how these things were accomplished, they were always accomplished in concert with others. Yeah, I, I think that's really, I've really found that to be practical in my own life, just through, and especially recently coming to school, because school and academics were always something that came very easy for me, especially in, in high school. And I, I never relied on tutors or counselors or teachers outside of class. Mm-hmm. Like I would go to class, do my stuff, be done with it. But mm-hmm. now, you know, since coming to school, I think this is something that a lot of people have to mm-hmm. deal with just because of the the level of academics. I know that, you know, people at the University of Minnesota come mm-hmm. with, they're all among some of the smartest in their high school, right? And a lot yeah. of stuff came easy for them yeah. up until the point in which they get challenged for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really easy to look at a lot of these cultural tropes where we're yeah. like, no, we have to be the one sole person that does this for ourselves. Yeah. When in reality, support systems are the backbone of a mm-hmm. lot of the things that we'll have success in. And it's yeah. not going to be just us triumphing over everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the book, I love telling the story and, and just breaking down um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s journey. You know, the people that he surrounded himself were brilliant people and they really complemented his strengths. So he was able to perform at such a high level because he surrounded himself with these people that really complemented him. Abraham Lincoln, the team of rivals is a super well-known example. Um, but I think just basic level, if you know, you're looking at constructing a team to start a business or, you know, nonprofit, you know, community organizing, wherever the flavor might be, you might have one person who's really good at getting things done. You might have another person who's really good at like organizing and strategizing and, you know, collecting information. You might have somebody else that's really good at bringing more people on board, kind of that recruiting personality. So even just thinking about, you know, natural human experience, you have some things you're probably really good at and some things that don't come naturally for you. So who can you surround yourself with that really tap into those talents? What's the most common thing that you see stops somebody from, from acting this way? Because from the outside, it looks, it seems like it's probably an ego thing. Mm-hmm. And if I'm on base with that, maybe, maybe not. But in your experience, what is, what has stopped people from, you know, in your definition, acting heroic? Yeah. hundred percent fear. Okay. So Fear takes a lot of different forms. Um, I break down kind of three in the book. Um, I call them foes, fears, and failures. So sometimes something doesn't go right, and we kind of get trapped in the fear of, I won't be able to do this, but it's just another flavor of, of fear. Um, a lot of times we externalize foes, but really foes are more often than not things and people that we set up as obstacles rather than true obstacles. Because a lot of times, 
if we were to really address the fear of working with that person or understanding their ideas, like there's a, there's a way that you can build something that's stronger than what's possible than, you know, just, um, individually done. Um, and you know, third one obviously is fear, um, the more broad catch all, but it is easy. It's comfortable. It's safe to, to not stretch ourselves, um, to, to not do the things that are really hard. Um, you know, if you think about doing something really kind of outlandish, say you're going to leave the university of Minnesota and you're like, yeah, instead of going to work for this, you know, fortune 100 company, I'm going to start my own business. There's a lot of risk there. There's a lot of fear. You might be uh, worried that somebody's going to, you know, say, Hey Tyler, like, what were you thinking? Right. You just graduated. Why would you do something that stupid? You had this really nice, secure, safe option. And you know, so a lot of times we talk ourselves out of it and those, that's also another flavor of the foe, right? You have somebody in your ear being like, take the safe route, you know, don't risk it. And as humans, we're really risk averse. Um, it's easy to kind of play small. So it's really, you know, fear is hands down the number one thing that holds us back. Especially in the context of business, I feel like when, you know, you consider people that you're supposed to be competing against or when you consider, you know, doing your own venture and having this fear of failure, that business is almost set up so that you don't act heroic. It's almost set up so that you're sort of, you know, beat into this, I don't want to say beat into submission, but almost, you know, coerced into this this certain path which i which i think is really interesting and just understanding that it, you know the dichotomy of all these young business students around me it's like it's almost like you're looking over your shoulder trying to compete with everybody else yeah. but that that doesn't have to be the case yeah well and you know it's funny you you mentioned kind of this culture of business look at the mythology around business you know you have you know the the richard bransons you have you know the tim cook or you know steve jobs before him mm-hmm. you know you have these really legendary figures who broke outside the norm and yet like there's this mainstream culture of oh play it safe you don't want to you know go too far outside the norm and so i think it's really interesting that the mythology around business is actually a a whole different thing it's the people who took risks and yeah fell on their face a few times i mean you look at steve jobs and his his life um he fell on his face a lot you know early he was fired from his own company i mean how embarrassing is that but he found another path. And so it's never to say that this is going to be easy, but again, it's, it's about that struggle. And that's the core part. I think of the hero's journey is it's, there's a struggle there and that's real. Um, and if you're not willing to pay that price of admission, you're also giving up the success, you know, cause there is a price, but you know, but ultimately if you want to achieve at that high level, you have to take those risks. Do you either have that affinity to do it or not? Or is it something that you can, become better at and what are some things that you have to knock out of the way to become better at? Because I think there are, you know, Steve Jobs, whoever you want to say, Jeff Bezos, that are really aspirational figures, but it's just kind of like, you know, we're not all like that. So how do we become more like that? Because it sounds great, but yeah, it seems hard. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. I don't think anybody's born that way. Okay. I think it is a hundred percent a learned skill. Um, it's one of those things that, the more you do it, the more your tolerance grows for it. And so maybe people that you see around here that might be more comfortable with the risk had more experiences earlier in their life that exposed them to that where, you know, they were more comfortable taking risks and standing out. But I don't think anyone's born with that. As social creatures, you know, we are we are hardwired biologically to not stand too far outside the herd. You know, you think about our, our primitive ancestors, you know, if they wandered too far from the group, you know, they were dinosaur food. So that's in our DNA and it's only the people who develop that skill to venture out that really, I think, gain that skill. 
Yeah, it's, it's wonderfully said. Wrapping up here, we've been speaking now for 54 minutes. I told you it would fly by. Um, it has for me at least. I like to give sort of a final catch-all piece to my guests, especially ones that I know have a lot um, to say for the listeners. And you know, the demographic here is it skews younger and skews more entrepreneurial in, in nature and, and definitely more business-minded. Um, but what would your advice be to them young people you probably give it on a daily basis but Mm -hmm. sort of your you know your largest piece of advice for for people sort of staring down this professional real world Mm -hmm. you know day of reckoning day of reckoning type event yeah i would come right back to run towards something not away from something i think if as long as you're doing that in life you'll never regret your decisions it's not to say there won't be hard moments things that um you know difficulties that trip you up that's that's part of life but as long as you're running towards something, not away from something, I think you're going to be better off than the vast majority of people. Um, so that's always hands down my advice I give to everybody. Wonderful. Can you tell people where they can buy your book? Because if you know they're not interested already, I think they should uh, they should round that one out. Yeah. Uh, let people know where they can pick that up. Absolutely. So like you said, the title is Building Up Without Tearing Down. So you can find the website at www.buildingupwithouttearingdown.com. Um, it's Barnes and Noble, Amazon, a lot of major booksellers. Um, you can get there. Of course. Easy enough. All right. Well, thank you so much for not only inspiring me to get into this podcast, but for joining me today. I had a, uh, had a great time. I, you know, I had these notes written down for a little behind the scenes for everybody, but I had some notes and I, I hardly looked at them. I was just enthralled the entire time. So awesome. thank you so much for, uh, for letting everybody know uh, what's up in the world of yeah. careers. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And that is it for this episode. If you enjoyed, there is more to come. An episode of How They're Here releases every other Wednesday. In the meantime, check us out on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook by searching How They're Here, or find me online at Tyler M. Webb to connect. If you want to hear more from us, make sure to rate and subscribe. It helps us stay in business. Thank you as always for listening, and I'll talk to you all soon. Peace.